to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. A couple of announcements. I mentioned community group signups. Be sure to jump in and do that today. And then also uh, coming up on the 27th, if you're new to City on a Hill, maybe the last couple of months, um, and you haven't really gotten connected, uh, we'd love to help you do so. We have a newcomer's dinner. Uh, We will make you dinner at our house. It's very low key. There's no pressure. It's just a good way to get to know some other people. And we'll give you a couple of next steps if you would like to get a little more involved. So be sure to sign up for that at our event page on our website, coahforesthills.org, and just click on the events tab. Uh, Now this morning, I'm going to read the scriptures uh, for us from Genesis chapter 11 and 12, um, starting with our scripture reading in chapter 12. Uh, Just just one thing, if you see me run out right after the service, it's not because I don't like you. Um, We have a uh, a congregation in Brighton. We're part of a network of churches called City in a Hill, and their pastor, Aaron, is on sabbatical. And so I'm covering for him today, and they meet at 10. So I got to time travel a little bit and get over there. And so, uh, so if you see me run out, it's not because I don't like you. Um, But we're going to be in Genesis chapters 11 and 12 today. Our reading is from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. When I'm done, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I would ask you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old, and when he departed from Haran, uh, when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now this morning, we're back in the book of Genesis. We spent the month of December in, uh, in our Advent series. And we're looking, Advent's important. We talked about the liturgical calendar earlier because we take a moment, we slow down during the busyness of the holidays. And we remember, we, we remember the longing that Israel had for a savior, for a savior to come and to make all things right. And so we enter into that longing and we, and we celebrate on Christmas day that Jesus has come. We celebrate that the light has come into the world. And so we, this is important for us to do periodically through the year, but most of the time we are typically going through books of the Bible. We're typically going through books of the Bible from the beginning to the end, and we believe this is important for several reasons. One is that when you look at a text from the beginning to the end, you tend to see things you wouldn't see otherwise. 
If I was just kind of like hopping and jumping and skipping through the Bible, I would tend to lean on the things I like to talk about. But if, if we are going through a book of the Bible, we have to hit some things that you just wouldn't have seen otherwise. And we'll see some of that this morning. Uh, the other thing is, is that you talk about things that are hard. Uh, we have made a commitment as a church that we don't skip hard things in the Bible. Uh, because I think there's something here. It's God's word, and God's word is, is living and active, and it helps us. Every bit of this is good for teaching and reproof and correction. So even the hard things we're going to be pressing into. And also there are different types of genres. And so it would be easy for us to lean on, say, like Paul's letters in the New Testament because they're just teaching. It's really straightforward. It's easier for me as a pastor to prepare for those because it's kind of like it says do this and don't do that. There you go. There's the sermon. That, that's a lot easier. Um, I could give you just wisdom literature from the Proverbs or the Psalms and just kind of give you a nugget for the day. Uh, but when we look at a narrative like Genesis, which is a lot like the Gospels that tell us the story about Jesus, there's a call for us to enter into the story and see ourselves. How do we see ourselves in the story of God's people? And so Genesis is a bit like a story in two parts, a story in two acts. And so we looked at Genesis 1 through 11 in the fall, and this is really the story of how God created a whole world for people. God created the world, and we saw this in Genesis 1, that God spoke the world into creation. And because of that, we have a world full of meaning, a world full of purpose, a world full of beauty and truth. And so God created this world, but he filled that world with people. And so at the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2, we see God created male and female in his image, man and woman, who do all things as, as gendered as men and women, specifically to the glory of God, equally to the glory of God. So he sets these people forward in the world, and he makes a covenant with them that if they follow him and they obey him and they trust him, that he will, he will bless them and that the world will flourish. So everything seems great until you get to Genesis chapter 3, the whole thing falls apart, thank you, Adam and Eve, and, uh, and sin enters the world and just wrecks everything. It wrecks everything, and, and we really look at Genesis 4 through 11, and we see the aftermath of the fall, and we see this really throughout the Bible, and honestly, if we look at our own lives, we see that the fall is still playing its way out in the world. In Genesis 4 through 11, we see this spiral of human evil and oppression and sin as they choose to try to rule themselves and run away from God and, and try to be the sovereigns over their own world. And it gets so evil at one point, in fact, it says it was exceptionally evil, that God brings a flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8 to wipe the world clean and start over. And as, as we kind of look at the last sermon we looked at in the fall, in Genesis chapter 11, it kind of pinnacles at the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, we see that, that sin is not just personal, but it's also systemic, that it has become something where they're holding down human flourishing in a way that they're oppressing people and suppressing the natural ethnic diversification of the world, that the world would, would uh, blossom into further linguistic diversification. And what we see through Genesis 1 through 11 is it's almost as if it's saying, they're never going to get this right. They're never going to find their way back to God. They're never going to figure this out. They're never going to educate themselves out of this or govern themselves out of this or cooperate themselves out of this. And so we see the entire story narrowing from mankind down to one family. And if you look at Genesis 11 verses 10 through 26, we see the connection between Noah's family all the way to Abraham. So Noah's family, Noah's son Shem ends up having a family, and we're not going to go through every single one of these people, but we see this genealogy of people that leads to Terah Abram's father. And it leads us to this place, and this is the connection to the second part of Genesis, that God makes a family for the whole world. 
So it's narrowed down the story to one singular family, and really one singular man, Abraham, or Abram as he's called here at the beginning of, of the series. And so the question is, is why does this story about a man born 4,000 years ago matter? Why does this, it seems like a pretty random guy. Why this guy? And we need to see that Abram is not just important to Jewish history, but he's important to the history of almost the entire world. Because if you were to drive by a mosque this morning, or a synagogue, or any number of churches, if those people take their sacred text seriously, they would trace their faith back to Abraham. They would believe that Abraham was the father of their faith. So nearly 5 billion people on the planet would credit Abraham as being the father of their faith. And so it's a story of this, but it's, it's not a story like a myth or, or fiction. When, I was, when I, my kids were little, one of my favorite things to do with them is I would tell a story every night, and I would just make the story up as we went. And uh, it would be whatever was on my mind that night. It would be about dragonflies or caterpillars or whatever, and it would always, the characters would always be their names. Like there, was, there was a caterpillar named Lily and Addie and Karis and Amelie, and they're like, oh, that's us. And I'm like, I know. And so we would do this, and we, there were always some sort, of, some sort of morals of the story. There'd be teamwork, and there'd be conflict, and they'd get to the end of the story, and everything would come together. And I think that's kind of how we view the Bible sometimes. We view it as a story that we sort of insert ourselves into in order to get a little moral nugget out of, but we don't actually believe that this is history. We don't actually believe that these are true words that impact our lives beyond getting us from Monday to Tuesday. But the Bible does something that no other worldview or religion does. It puts its claims into history to be verified and tested. It puts its claims into history, and we know this because what did God do? God became a man. Jesus took on flesh. Jesus became like us. And the biggest claim of most religions or most worldviews is this. If you live this particular way, if you follow this set of rules, if you do this and don't do that, if you deny certain things, then you're going to live a good life. In fact, you don't even have to be religious to believe that. Any worldview, if you take humanism, which says if you just live for yourself, then you're going to be successful. Capitalism says if you just make enough money, you're going to be okay. Socialism on the far other side says if everybody has the same amount, everyone's going to be happy. And even if you're just kind of non-religious and into activism, what it's saying is, is if you care about the right things, then good things will happen to you. But honestly, how do you know any of those are going to work? How are they possibly tested? But the Bible puts all of this right into human history because Jesus did take on flesh and he did live and he did die and he did raise again within human history. And there's tons of evidence for this even outside the scriptures that Jesus came, lived, died, and many believe rose again. And this matters because Abraham is the same, that Abraham, his story is something that happened in history. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all these promises that we see to Abraham, of a, of a land, of being a people, and having a name. And it matters because in a world full of evil, God made a way and he promised that Abraham and his family would be the key and the means to blessing all people. So let's take a look at Abraham's family this morning and what they're like, but also they're going to show us something about all families. And the first part we see this morning is that family is a mess. Amen? Amen. Family is a mess. Like most families, Abraham's family was a hot mess with lots of brokenness. Now, some of you spent time with your family over the holidays with varying degrees of joy, right? Some of you got asked all those life questions you don't want to answer, right? When are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? When are you going to move closer to home? You got asked ask all those questions. It's like the movie Four Christmases. I mean, if any of you have ever seen that, 
uh, Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon and their families are, 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 are mixed families. So they both you know, have to go to four different Christmases and Vince Vaughn's family, like they're like redneck, macho, getting put in a headlock on the floor. Some of your family Christmases were like that. Abram's family was a little bit crazy. And if you look at this, if you look at their genealogy in the beginning of this, they seem really normal. They seem really put together. But as we go through the rest of this chapter, the rest of this, this series, the book of Genesis, you're going to see some crazy stuff that you don't emulate. I often say that uh, the book, the Bible, sometimes you've got to figure out what's prescribed and what's described. Not a lot is being prescribed in Genesis with, with Abram's family. It's describing a lot of mess and brokenness. And so some of this brokenness was just part of living in a fallen world. We see this in chapter 11, verse 27, that Terah, Abram's father, had three sons. We see Abram listed first, likely because he was, you know, even though he's youngest, because he's important to the story. And we see right out the gate that his family experiences heartache. We see in verse 28 that Terah's son, likely his oldest son, Haran, died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in in Ur of the Chaldeans. He had to watch his oldest son die. Now, that didn't strike me really until this week. And I think it's easy for us sometimes to skip over the humanness we see in the text. He watched his son die. No parent should have to bury a child. It's easy to skip over this, and he has to carry this weight with him. When my father passed away, I was given this book called Recovering from Losses in Life by H. Norman Wright. And one of the things he said in that book is that the, the phrase that time heals all wounds is a lie. It doesn't heal anything. But time does teach you how to limp with that wound. Tara, for the rest of his life, had to limp with the idea of losing his oldest son. We also see in verse 30, we see that this family struggled with infertility. Sarai uh, was barren. She had no children. She experienced the pain of infertility, and she was 65 years old, which likely meant at that time she was beyond birthing years. And if you look at the promise to make a people, this seems like a very large barrier to being able to birth a people. It probably felt isolating. In fact, in the ancient world, it would have often been viewed as a curse. It would have been viewed as, as, as evidence that you were out of step with, with God or with the gods. And it probably felt very isolating, and it can feel that way even within a church community. Those who have struggled with infertility or maybe struggling right now can feel like you are alone, and I would encourage you to talk with other people and share your story, because you may discover that you're not alone at all. Experience that, that heartache and that brokenness. We also see, also see in 32 that Abram loses his father. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. He lost his parent. I mean, this is the patriarch of the family. And in the ancient world, all the blessings, all the money, all the the protection, all came through the father. And so everything ran through him and he lost his parent. And this is just, there's an unbelievable difficulty that comes with losing a parent. It's hard to explain. After my dad died, I felt myself struggling to reconcile parts of our relationship that never were, that I'd always longed for, and didn't realize that I wanted until he had passed away. All of us carry family brokenness. Things that weren't necessarily your fault, but things that just happen because you're a part of a particular family. Things that, that shape you. you know, that, look, there are no perfect parents. None of us had the perfect parents. Some of, your, some of your parents may have been harmful or even abusive. And there's so much about our upbringing and our family of origin that's caught rather than taught. 
And we see this with Abram's family. In fact, we see Abram's kids begin to repeat some of the same mistakes that he's going to make. It's intimidating. You can't help the house that you're broken. Some of these things you're brought up in, some of these things are just part of being in the fallen world. However, some brokenness is self-inflicted. Sometimes you're in a bad spot because you did something dumb. And this is kind of what Abram is going to do. We're going to see a lot of this. In fact, a major theme in Abram's life is he does some really stupid stuff. That's very theological, I know. Um, he was very self-reliant. He, he, he would make his own plans. He'd rely on his own efforts, his own idea of what was good. And this often just led to confusion and compromise. It led to confusion and compromise that led to pain down the road. And so we see that his family has traveled to Ur of the Chaldeans, and eventually they're going to head back toward Haran, but they had settled down there. And to give you a little bit of context here, if you look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 11, we saw the Tower of Babel. We saw people were coming together, and they, were, they weren't spreading out as God had called them to do so. God separates them, and a theme throughout the book of Genesis is that anytime someone's moving toward the east, it's the symbolism of the fact that they're moving away from the presence of God. So we see that uh, that uh, Terah and Abram and his family are moving away from the presence of God. They're, they're moving away from him. But as they're moving back toward Haran, it seems like as God has called Abram, he called him from Ur, it seems like he's starting to make some steps back. He's starting to wander back toward God, but gets detoured in Haran. And whether this is that he lost focus or maybe Terah got sick, we don't really know, but we also know that Abram's family began to compromise in the area of who they worshipped. If you look at Joshua chapter 24, Joshua says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So they were wandering away from God, they were serving and worshipping other gods, and we, we see all these factors and all these threats that would seem to be threats to the promises that God had made to Abraham. We see barrenness. We see unfaithfulness. We see in chapter 12, verse 6, that there were other people occupying the land. You can't just walk up to somebody's house and say, I'm going to live here now, right? They, they have to be willing to sell or move out. You've got to have a reason to get out of the house. There are all these, these seeming threats to God fulfilling his promises and so how do we know that God is going to work through this family? Because while we're unfaithful and while we're unsteady and while we tend to move away from the presence of God, God always remains the same. He never changes. He, he never fails. And we can all see ourselves in this family because many of us have experienced loss or heartache this year. You know what it feels like to experience brokenness. Maybe that's been going on for generations you have longings that just never seem to be fulfilled. Or maybe it's just personal. You just can't get away from a particular pattern of sin. And it seems like all of these are threats to the promises of God that we have through Christ. And you begin to ask questions that question God's promises. God, if I keep doing this, am I really saved? Do you really love me? Are you really for me. And so when you think about that, what are some of the threats that you see in your life to believing the promises of God that come through Jesus? Maybe it is self-inflicted. We also at times move away from God and we try to rely on ourselves. There's an old hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We feel that tug to, to, to run away from God. 
And in Boston, our solution to this, when we feel like everything's falling apart, is just to do it ourselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with with planning. There's nothing wrong with using wisdom. But what God does is he invites us in to draw close to him to help us understand how to live. Proverbs 4, verse 10 says, going through verse 13 says, Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. See, Much like Abram, God has called you and I to submit our lives to him. And this means our decisions about what we do and where to live and how to spend our money and our time aren't just about comfort. They're not just about ease. They're not just about any of these things, but it's about what pleases God. It's about what leads to his glory being experienced by more and more people. And so your family history might be a mess. Some of that might be even self-inflicted, but it doesn't mean that God can't work in you and through you. In fact, the second idea is that family is a means of blessing. As messed up as Abram's family was, God intended to bless him. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 12. We see the content of the blessing. We see at the end of verse 1 that God promises a a land to them, that they're going to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, that he offered them the land of Canaan. The land to to the west that was going to be the promised land. And we see this throughout the Bible that they were to occupy this land. This would be a place of of, of justice and mercy, uh, glorifying and worshiping God to be an example to the nations around them. He says that he's going to make them into a nation. This is a pretty large house for them to all live in. They need to fill it with some other people, get some roommates. Uh, So so we see at the beginning of verse 2, I'll make you a great nation. He's going to go from this one little family to a nation of people. But also, he was, he's going to make his name famous. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. As we look throughout the Bible, people began to honor and revere Abraham. People, uh, even later in the book of Genesis, were jealous of how much money and fame and how many people he had. Abram's going to be blessed beyond imagination, but it required that Abram be willing to give up everything in order to receive this blessing. He had to be willing to give up everything that he'd ever known and ever trusted in order to receive the blessing. So in order to receive the content of the blessing, he had to be willing to receive the radical call of the blessing. There was a radical call put upon Abram's life in order to receive the promises that God had given him. And what it was was to leave everything he'd ever known. He says in verse 12, go from your country. Leave what's comfortable. Leave what's known. Leave what's familiar. So he'd already left Ur for Haran, and he says, says in, in chapter 1 that I want you to leave this, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. You haven't even seen this place yet. I only did this one time in my life. We were moving from Colorado to Arizona. We had to make a quick move. Uh, I wasn't on the run from the law, I promise. And we had to make a run. We had to make a quick move, and I had to call a friend because we couldn't look at the, the place we were going to rent before we moved there. And so I, I said, would you be willing to go and look at this house before we move in, before we put down a, a deposit to rent it. So I had to put a lot of trust in my friend that I was going to end up with like purple shag carpet in this place. I had to put a lot of trust in him. Same way Abram had to trust God with com- what was completely unknown. He thought, not only do I want you to leave your, leave your country, but also your kindred and your father's house. He had to leave the comforts 
of home to experience the blessing that God promised. Whenever you go home, especially if you grew up in a a home that was life-giving and comfortable, it it has a certain feel. Like the moment you walk in the door, there's just kind of a a hum in that house. You know the the tenor, you you know what it feels like to be home. For me, when I would come home from college, it was the smell of the sheets. I don't know what it was, but the sheets and the pillowcase just smelled like home. We go home to Amy's family in Alaska, and I knew there was going to be good food in the refrigerator. And we were a young, broke, married couple. I was like, there's going to be string cheese in the refrigerator, not, not craft Singles. Like, we're going to do this. Time to throw down. There's something comfortable about home. He says, I want you to leave that. He's not saying turn your back on your family. He's not saying disown your family. We'll see how they're interconnected later. But what he's doing, he says, when you take the call of God, the the radical call of God, there's two things that happen. It's about priority and dependency. God reprioritizes our lives and calls us to depend upon him. What did Jesus later say it would cost to be his disciple? He says, you must hate your mother and your father and your brother and your sister. Not literally hate them, but you must prioritize them in such a way that you love me first. You love me above anything else. God is saying, I have to be the priority. I have to be number one in your life. And what this requires is that you give up control. You have to be dependent upon him. And what he shows us is this giving up of control leads to God's blessing. It leads to to God's blessing that the Lord would make a childless couple with no place to live into a great nation. And I don't know where you're at with this. You could be in one of two places. What, what if God, what if Boston is the place of blessing that God has for you? Maybe you're far away from home. It, it's hard here. It's expensive. It's cold. But what if digging in and giving yourself to the city is exactly how God intends to, get, to, to bless you? How God wants to grow you into who he wants you to be? That you may find a family in God's church even when you're separated from your earthly family that ends up being a greater blessing to your earthly family. Maybe Boston is home or it's become incredibly comfortable. What if God wanted to stretch you and send you to the nations? What if God wanted to send you to a place like Iceland where it's even colder than here to share the good news of Jesus? But there's hope here because even if you don't have a great family, you can be a part of one. You can be a part of a broader family of God's people. Because what did Jesus promise? Jesus said, I've come to make all things new. And this means that he longs for flourishing and healing in places like your family, like your relationship with your parents or your spouse or your kids, that you show the love and the mercy and forgiveness of God's grace. It also means that anybody can get in on this. As we submit ourselves to God, he calls us and he changes us. Tim Keller says that the call of God is so powerful Not only do you have to have it or your life is a dead end, he says, I don't care how nice a person you are, but it also will transform you no matter how bad a person you are. Anybody can get in on this family, the blessings of this family. But lastly, family is meant to be a blessing to others. This is not just uh, something we hoard to ourselves, the blessings that God gives his people. He didn't want Abram to just be a nice, happy, little blessed family and and, and bless them monetarily so that he could raise a bunch of little idol worshipers. That's not what he wanted to do. He he promised to make him a great nation, verse 2. Why? So that you will be a blessing. I want to bless you so you will be a blessing 
to other people. And he ties this in so much that in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And every person on earth would ultimately, ultimately, ultimately be blessed by their relationship to Abraham. And they were to do, how exactly did that work? What, what were they to do? They were to do the exact same thing that God had told Adam and Eve. What did he tell them? He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. But he failed. What did God tell Noah? I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to make the world a place full of justice and mercy and the glory of God, not a place of evil. I want your family to be this. And I think one of the worst things, and I'm not anti-family, I'll be just very clear as I say this, one of the worst things to happen is the Western idea of what a family is. One of the absolute worst things that happened to the church is the Western idea of the family that it is just a mom and a dad and 2.3 kids and maybe a dog or a cat. That's not the biblical understanding of a family. It's not saying it's, it's less than that, but it's more than that. Because in the Bible, it included grandparents and included aunts and uncles, and not just that, it included other people in your circle, in your orbit. It was the entire community of faith. But when family is a closed, impenetrable circle and our homes have become safe places that are to hold away from the world, but not as a means to bless other people, we as the church are failing at what God has called us to do. And if you look at the Old Testament family, Abraham's family was to be a pattern for every family. They were, to, they were to go into the world and be a light to all nations, to be a people set apart. And if we look at chapter 12, verses 4 through 9, we see that Abraham was, was obedient. He, he did go forth. He trusted God in his word. They, they moved toward the promised land. He, he made an offering and he worshiped God and he had this desire to set up a family that was going to be a blessing to all people. And when Abram's family, which grew into the nation of Israel, were at their best, here's what they did. They were always bringing other people along the way. They were collecting groups of other people. In fact, as you see the nation of Israel go into Egypt, into exile, and they leave and come to the promised land, you see people from Africa, you see people from the Near East, you see people from all over the known world finding their way into God's family. They find their way in. They were living for the good and the flourishing of others. They found people like Naomi who had lost other people, who had lost her family. They found people on the outside like Ruth. They found the notorious like Rahab. But most of the time, they didn't live up to this idea of being a blessing, this vision. They were giving themselves to, to selfish agendas. I'm busy, I'm tired, I got a lot going on. They gave themselves into idol worship, man, work is tough, I gotta be successful, I need to, to find comfort for myself. They were so focused on themselves, what about my time, what about me? But God intended for a family to bless the whole world, and yet they failed at it. So how does God bring this blessing into the world? How do we step into this? We have to remember that God never fails. He used this broken family for his glory. If you've been doing our Bible reading plan, which we started last week, it's not too late, we have a few more copies in the back, we'll have some more next week. The second day was Matthew chapter 1, and what did it say at the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1? That Jesus was who? The son of of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise, that he used all the broken and messed up efforts of Abraham and his family and his descendants to lead to Jesus. 
that God was faithful to them from generation to generation to bring the Savior into the world. And here's what we see in Jesus' life, that Jesus, like Abraham, left his home. He left his home at the side of the Father and came into our world to make us his family for the exaltation of his name. So how do we become a blessed people? How do we respond to Abraham and his family? Firstly, we have to have faith like Abraham. Faith is trust that leads to obedience. John Piper says of this, that faith in God's promises, or today we would say faith in Christ, who is the confirmation of God's promises, is the way to become a child of Abraham. Obedience is the evidence that faith is genuine. When Abraham obeyed God, Hebrews 11 said it was counted to him as righteousness. For us, it's having faith in Jesus alone. Have you placed your faith in Jesus alone and are you trusting that the promises that your sins are forgiven is true? Secondly, consider what you need to leave behind for the joy ahead of you. What is it you're still clinging to, still longing for, that will never lead you to life that you need to lay down in order to receive the blessing that God has for you? And then lastly, seek to be a blessing as part of a greater family. One of the best ways that we can do this is to step in and be the church, to be the church to one another. I was reading a book just this week that talked about how the family is a little miniature kingdom. Our our earthly families are this little miniature kingdom where we get to exemplify what it means to be God's people, but we'll never learn to do that well unless we're a part of God's greater family, the church. Let's press in. Let's pray. 